Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Of all the fragrances, sandal, tagara, blue lotus, and jasmine, the fragrance of virtue is the sweetest. Faint is the fragrance of tagara and sandal. But excellent is the fragrance of the virtuous, wafting even among the gods. The traveler on the path will become a saint long before he becomes an arahant. The ethics group of the Noble Eightfold Path consists of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Together, these represent exemplary conduct in the world. Of the three groups of the Noble Eightfold Path, the ethics group has greatest continuity with the Buddhist life. When I talked about the Buddhist life in previous talks, we discovered three primary ways in which virtue is practiced in Buddhism, through generosity, through harmlessness, and through purity. Generosity is found in speech or action that benefits others, realized in many different ways, most typically in community. Harmlessness is found in speech or action that respects the safety of others, realized conventionally through adhering to precepts, which are rules of thumb that tend to protect others. Purity is found in the kind of mind that tends towards generosity and harmlessness, the kind of mind grounded in renunciation rather than in greed, in kindness rather than in hatred, and in wisdom rather than in ignorance, the mind from which generosity and harmlessness flow naturally. These three forms of practice continue in the Buddhist path, Purity effectively becomes elevated to the primary emphasis of the path and is developed further in the wisdom and concentration groups. After discussing right speech, right action, and right livelihood, we'll take up kamma or karma once again, the underlying foundation of Buddhist virtue, but also the foundation of higher attainments along the path. Right speech. It's important to appreciate how much emphasis the Buddha placed on right speech. This is true in many of the discourses and in the Vinaya, the monastic code. And the importance accorded to speech is probably why it comes as the very first factor in the ethics group. It's easy to think that speech is relatively harmless when compared to bodily actions. We all know sayings like, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, and actions speak louder than words. But consider that racism, sexism, nationalism, 
and eventually war and ethnic cleansing all start with and are driven by many acts of wrong speech. We abuse speech to seek vengeance, to turn one person or group against another, to deceive and manipulate, to get people to buy things they do not need and cannot afford, and to exalt the magnificence of ourselves. Saying what is not true in particular undermines our trust in each other, which a society requires to function. In this modern age of mass communication, right speech has become even more critical as it finds expression through the many forms of media, and the speech of each of us can easily reach mass audiences, sometimes even inadvertently going viral. Given a few advances in technology since the Buddha's day, speech now includes the written word, blogs, videos, radio broadcasts, and maybe even pantomime. The conventional five Buddhist precepts include an abstention from lying. The following enhanced set is specified in the context of the path. Not to lie. I have here in my hand the names of 80 communist agents who have penetrated the State Department. Not to speak divisively. He's got two wives and a bartender to support. Not to speak harshly, you blankety-blank jerk, why don't you learn how to drive? Not to chatter idly, blah, 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 yakety, yakety, yak. Violation of any of the first three precepts here clearly brings harm. But the last precept, like the precept concerning intoxication, more specifically supports purification of mind. In this case, controlling our tendency towards restlessness and obsession. Again, modern media enhances our capacity for this kind of wrong speech. For instance, watching talk shows generally constitutes being a party to idle chatter. As most of us are aware, there is an art to speech. We can use it skillfully to involve others in desired results to avoid offense and maintain interpersonal harmony, to inspire and to instruct. The Buddha, the master communicator, has a lot to say about the art of speech. He gives particular attention to interpersonal harmony. With regard to idle chatter, the Buddha provides us with examples of topics of conversation to avoid, at least for monastics whose behavior is highly regulated. Whereas some Brahmins and contemplatives living off food given in faith are addicted to talking about lowly topics such as these, talking about kings, robbers, ministers of state, armies, alarms and battles, food and drink, clothing, furniture, garlands and scents, relatives, Vehicles, villages, town cities, the countryside, women and heroes, the gossip of the street and the well, tales of the dead, tales of diversity, which are philosophical discussions of past and future, the creation of the world and of the sea, 
and talk of whether things exist or not, he abstains from talking about lowly topics such as these. This, too, is part of his virtue. He also warned of our relentless tendency to cling to views, turn these to debate, and to take pride in being right. Whereas some Brahmins and contemplatives living off food given in faith are addicted to debates such as these. You understand this doctrine and discipline. I'm the one who understands this doctrine and discipline. How could you understand this doctrine and discipline? You're practicing wrongly. I'm practicing rightly. I'm being consistent. You're not. What should be said first, you said last. What should be said last, you said first. What you're doing so long to think out has been refuted. Your doctrine has been overthrown. You're defeated. Go and try to salvage your doctrine. Extricate yourself if you can. He abstains from debates such as these. This, too, is part of his virtue. The ethics of speech is directly connected with purity of mind for the simple reason that thought is very close to speech, or as the Buddha phrased it, thought is that which is about to break into speech. We can generally guess another's intention simply from which precept concerning speech is being violated. Lying involves gaining some kind of personal advantage in competition with others' interests through deception. Speaking divisively is an attempt to destroy someone's reputation out of retribution or general ill will. Idle chatter comes from restlessness in a fog of delusion. To encourage these forms of speech would be to encourage defiled thoughts. To restrain these tendencies provides a very good opportunity for insight into the mind and support for practicing purity of mind. Right action. Everyone agrees that sticks and stones really can break one's bones. Right action is the core of ethics, and many examples have been given in my talks on Buddhist life. However, discussions of right action generally highlight three precepts. First, not to assault living beings. Take that, cockroaches from hell. Not to take what is not given. Hmm, snatch. I don't think anybody will miss this. Not to commit sexual misconduct. With their wife out of town suavely adjusting necktie, I can have some real fun. These are the first three of the conventional five precepts that Buddhists try to uphold. These are wide-ranging, since the first inhibits intentions rooted in hatred, the second intentions rooted in greed, and the third intentions rooted in delusion, interestingly enough. It's important that we give these precepts free range. For instance, extending the first to protecting living beings wherever they may be threatened and developing kindness toward all living beings. 
We should also recognize the importance of minor precepts, including rules of thumb of our own creation. Often these serves as an expedient for avoiding conditions in which a major precept might be violated. For instance, if I'm a master safecracker, newly released from prison, but determined to live a blameless life evermore, I might want to shun my own colleagues in crime, lest they have new seductive perpetrations afoot. Notably missing from the three-part account of right action is the fifth of the standard five precepts. Not to enter the heedlessness of spirits, liquor, and intoxicants. Here the harm this precepts avoid is less directed than assault, theft, or sexual misconduct, and more of the nature of visiting old colleagues in crime, in that we can anticipate only eventual harm. Observing this precept shapes the purity of our karmic landscape and our characters at a more subtle, more cautionary level in avoiding a habit pattern that can easily spin out of control. Similarly, for the following precept, commonly followed by monastics and monastic-like people, not to dance, sing, play music, or watch shows. This supports purity of mind at a deep level, in this case controlling our tendency to restlessness and obsession around sensual pleasures by guarding the senses. Right action properly includes finding and implementing ways to bring benefit to others. Much of the discussion of this in the early text includes actions affecting local communities, such as supporting the monastics and caring for the sick or indigent. However, we now live in a smaller and more complex world of enormous suffering, such that higher and more complex levels of social engagement are appropriate as part of the practice of ethics, as long as these bring benefit to people or other living creatures. We can stop here for now. We've looked at two of the virtue steps of the path, right speech and right action. Next week, we'll look at the final virtue step, right livelihood. Then we'll look at karma, an important factor when we talk about virtue.